Today's question, aren't all religions basically the same? Religion, from the root word religio, which is rooted in the word religiare. It means to bind. Religiare means to bind. So, with that in mind, the definition of religion is to be bound or committed to a certain perspective on the origins and purpose of life and the appropriate way to live it. That uh, definition comes to us from Jamie Scott. He is the editor of this book, The Religions of Canadians. This is a book that my wife Nikki recommended that I use as I prepared for this sermon in particular and this series at large. So that quote comes from him. Religion, to be bound or committed to a certain perspective on the origins and purpose of life and the appropriate way to live it. So I thought it would be uh, fun to start this sermon on religion with some thoughts on religion from some people you might have heard of. I will not even editorialize a little bit. You're welcome. Anyone who thinks sitting in church can make you a Christian must also think that sitting in a garage can make you a car. Garrison Kellior. I believe in Christianity because I believe that the sun has risen, not only because I see it, but because by it I see everything else. C.S. Lewis. The Christian does not think God will love us because we are good, but that God will make us good because he loves us. Also C.S. Lewis. Science without religion is lame. Religion without science is blind. Albert Einstein. For those who believe in God, most of the big questions are answered. But for those of us who can't readily accept the God formula, the big answers don't remain stone-written. We adjust to new conditions and discoveries. We are pliable. Love need not be a command, nor faith a dictum. I am my own God. We are here to unlearn the teachings of the church, state, and our educational system. We are here to drink beer. We are here to kill war. We are here to laugh at the odds and live our lives so well that death will tremble to take us. Charles Bukowski. When his life was ruined, his family killed, his farm destroyed, Job, de Job knelt down on the ground and yelled up to the heavens, why God, why me? And the thundering voice of God answered, there's just something about you that um, pisses me off. Stephen King from The Storm of the Century. The mind is its own place and in itself can make a heaven of hell a hell of heaven. John Milton, Paradise Lost. Religion has actually convinced people that there's an invisible man living in the sky who watches everything you do every minute of every day. And the invisible man is a special list of 10 things he does not want you to do. And if you do any of these 10 things, he has a special place full of fire and smoke and burning and torture and anguish where he will send you to live and suffer and burn and choke and scream and cry forever and ever till the end of time. But he loves you, he loves you, and he needs money. He really, really needs money. He's all powerful, all perfect, all knowing and all wise. Somehow he just can't handle money. George Carlin. Prayer is not asking, it's a longing of the soul. It's a daily admission of one's weakness. It is better in prayer to have a heart without words than words without a heart. Mahatma Gandhi. God has no religion. Also, Mahatma Gandhi. This one is awesome. Um, in heaven, all the interesting people are missing. Friedrich Nietzsche. A man can no more diminish God's glory by refusing to worship him than a lunatic can put out the sun by scribbling the word darkness on the walls of his cell. C.S. Lewis from The Problem of Pain. Knock and he'll open the door, vanish and he'll make you shine like the sun. Fall and he'll raise you to the heavens, become nothing and he'll turn you into everything. Jalal al-Din Rumi. I cannot believe in a God who wants to be praised all the time. Also, Friedrich Nietzsche. 
Science and religion are not at odds. Science is simply too young to understand. Dan Brown from Angels and Demons. Isn't it enough to see that a garden is beautiful without having to believe that there are fairies at the bottom of it too? Douglas Adams, The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. I read that when I was 14. Boy, did that book ever mess with me. Atheism turns out to be too simple. If the whole universe has no meaning, we should never have found out that it has no meaning. C.S. Lewis. Owners of dogs will have noticed that if you provide them with food and water and shelter and affection, they will think you are God. Whereas owners of cats are compelled to realize that if you provide them with food and water and shelter and affection, they draw the conclusion that they are gods. Christopher Hitchens, the portable atheist. Um, My concern is not whether God is on our side. My greatest concern is to be on God's side, for God is always right. Abraham Lincoln. Sometimes the Bible in the hand of one man is worse than a whiskey bottle in the hand of another. There are just some kind of men who who are so busy worrying about the next world, they've never learned to live in this one, and you can look down the street and see the results. Harper Lee, To Kill a Mockingbird. All I have seen teaches me to trust the Creator for all I have not seen. Ralph Waldo Emerson. He died not for men, but for each man. If each man had been the only man-made, he would have done no less. C.S. Lewis. I believe in God, but not as one thing, not as an old man in the sky. I believe that what people call God is something in all of us. I believe that what Jesus and Muhammad and Buddha and all the rest said was right. It's just that the translations have gone wrong. John Lennon. My religion is very simple. My religion is kindness. His Holiness, the Dalai Lama. (sighs) Aren't all religions basically the same? Actually, no. Fasten your seatbelts, please, for World Religions 101 in 20 minutes. From 12 pages to 20 cue cards, here we go. Let me tell you about Aboriginal religion. In the Aboriginal religion, the numinous and the natural world are one. This means that every individual lives always and forever in the midst of the sacred. There is no concept of salvation in Aboriginal religion. Therefore, there is not much of an evangelistic urge in Aboriginal religion. In all but the far north Inuit, tobacco is a sacred offering in Aboriginal religion, as well as the use of the spirit lodge, the concept of sacred space, the four directions, which are also known as the four winds, the belief in ritual power and medicine, and the belief that insight comes from deities to humans in ceremonial songs and dance. Here's a quote from uh, Jordan Paper about how Aboriginal people pray. Aboriginal people pray with their bodies through dancing. That's kind of a nice idea. In uh, Aboriginal religion, the cosmos is understood through the concept of a sacred center. So when you hear talk of centering or centeredness or the need to center one's self, there are Aboriginal religious roots in that line of thinking. They uh, make offerings to the sky and to the earth and to the four winds. In Aboriginal religion, sky and earth are the primal parents And the spiritual forces that we deal with as humans are animals and colors. In Aboriginal religion, humans are weak and nature is strong. 
If you've studied the history of Aboriginal religion, it makes a lot of sense that that belief would be bedrock to their faith. As you stand in the Alberta Plains at the mercy of a thunderstorm as it rips through, tearing everything in its wake. Humans are weak. Nature is strong. In Aboriginal religion, you are encouraged. In fact, you must develop a special relationship with spiritual entities in order to survive. These spiritual entities are usually animal spirits. And fasting and vision questing, which usually occurs at the onset of adolescence, is the primary means whereby somebody who has been raised in the Aboriginal religion goes about finding their spirit animal. In the spirit lodge, what happens in that ceremony is you've, of course, heard of teepees or um, spirit lodges. In the fallen west, we derogatorily refer to the spirit lodge as the sweat lodge. And as part of that ceremony, rocks would be heated. They symbolized maleness. They were brought into the lodge and lowered into a hole in the ground, symbolizing femaleness. And during that ceremony, it's a time of enlightenment, it's a time of restitution, a time of seeing. Another thing that is common in almost all Aboriginal faiths is the concept of the peace pipe. It's not called the peace pipe because it is offered primarily to bring peace, it's offered in two pieces. The bowl represents the female, the stem represents the male. The other thing that's noteworthy in Aboriginal faith is that it is resolutely egalitarian. When you look at the history of Aboriginal faith in the Canadian context, there are known to have been settlements that bordered on cities that were matrilinear, meaning the women ruled the roost. Judaism. We're a little more familiar with Judaism, right, as Judeo-Christians. You've probably sat under a preacher who preached from the Old Testament. I certainly do that a lot. Central to Judaism is the creation story, that one God made all things and made them good. That that one God created our first parents, Adam and Eve, set them in the Garden of Eden, gave them everything they needed for life and happiness, and one command not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, a command which they disobeyed, resulting in them being banished, cursed, and sent away from God's presence. Central to the Jewish faith is God calling Abraham to be his friend. And from Abraham's line, through the 12 tribes of Israel, God calling to himself a people, his own special people who would become the Jewish people. Absolutely bedrock in Jewish faith is the story of slavery in Egypt and the eventual exodus which saw them freed from Egypt and sent home to the promised land. Equally central is the giving of the law of Moses to the people of Israel at Mount Sinai in the Ten Commandments and the law. Following upon that, absolutely central is the story of the conquest of Canaan as Joshua and the 12 tribes traveled finally after 40 years wandering in the desert into the land of Canaan and absolutely conquered it, culminating in the next great pillar of Jewish faith, the Davidic dynasty. Of course, King David rose to, power, rose to power hundreds of years after the Israelites conquered the land of Canaan. Most scholars believe that what we know today as Judaism did not begin to be codified until the years of King David, because his dynasty brought with it enough stability that the Jewish people could begin writing down their story, which until that point, most scholars believe had been largely orally passed down. 
The next big moment in the Jewish story is the story of fall into sin after King David dies and King Solomon dies, after the kingdom is divided into Israel in the north and Judah in the south. And the sin that runs through the country results in exile under the Babylonians. The next big movement in the story of the Jewish people is, of course, the return from exile in Babylon, the rebuilding of the temple, which then leads, of course, to the Hasmonean Age and eventually to the 70 AD destruction of the Second Temple at the hands of Titus of Rome as Rome lays waste to Jerusalem and exiles those Jewish citizens that they do not kill once and for all to the European continent. It's after the Jews are exiled from Israel in 70 AD that Judaism in its modern sense begins to take its first baby, set, baby steps. The Sanhedrin, which had been the court, the religious court in Jerusalem during the age of the temple, is reestablished in exile. And in all of the far-flung settlements of Judaism throughout the known world, largely in Europe, the rabbinic tradition begins to take hold. As rabbis begin to codify the law of Moses and begin to lay out what it means to be Jewish when there is no longer a temple in which to worship God. In Judaism today, you have four clear, call them denominations. You have Orthodox Judaism, Reform Judaism, Conservative Judaism, and Reconstructionist Judaism. Orthodox Judaism believes that the Torah, the law, and the prophets are divinely inspired and needs to be followed exactly. Reform Judaism is the most popular form of Judaism in North America. If you know a Reform Jew, they don't say they go to synagogue, they say they go to temple. Reform Jews do not believe that the Torah, the law, and the prophets were divinely inspired. And throughout modernity, their focus has shifted from obedience to the law towards a more universal type of ethics. This is why most modern North American Jews are very involved in charitable giving, and they see their charitable giving as the outworking of their obedience to the law of Moses. Conservative Judaism is slightly more progressive than orthodoxy, but much more conservative than Reformed Judaism. It believes in progress. It believes in the divinely inspired Word of God. But it believes that progress must be walked out in accordance with the halakha. The halakha is basically the modern outworking of the rabbinic tradition. So they say, yes, we want progress, but we don't want to leave the tradition of our fathers. Reconstructionist Judaism is the Judaism that is most common in the land of Israel itself. Reconstructionist Judaism sees Judaism as the historical embodiment of the Jewish people and almost as nothing else. Therefore, you can be a non-observant Jew in Israel and still be Jewish because your Jewishness is rooted in the Jewish tradition. You cannot understand modern Judaism without understanding Zionism. Zionism was uh, popularized by Theodor Herzl between 1860 and 1904, and it came about in response to the rampant anti-Semitism that had ravaged Europe for hundreds of years. And so Theodor Herzl, with his Zionism, was the first one to say that the only hope for Judaism lay in a Jewish homeland. And so the impetus to move towards what became the modern state of Israel owes its genesis to Theodor Herzl and Zionism. You cannot understand modern Judaism divorced from the Holocaust. 
Modern Judaism sees itself as absolutely rooted as a reaction to World War II, where Nazi Germany massacred six million plus Jews in the ovens of the concentration camps. You cannot understand modern Judaism separated from the reality of the modern state of Israel. And I must say, as one who grew up in the modern state of Israel, that it is absolutely remarkable to see the people of the Bible living in the lands of the Bible. Once again, a sovereign nation, once again able to worship God in Jerusalem. You enjoying this so far? You feel like you're back in university? Wave at me if you're enjoying this so far. Islam. Islam is Canada's fastest growing religion. Islam developed after Christianity and Judaism. When I read the Quran for the first time in university, it seemed clear to me that it was a synthesis of Judaism and Christianity with a little bit of um, unique desert Saudi spiciness mixed in. That's what Islam seemed like to me first time I encountered it. Uh, most scholars agree that Islam is another form of ethical monotheism. Its founder, of course, was the Prophet Muhammad, who was born in 570 CE, so 570 Common Era, and he began his career in 610. His career begins with God calling him to warn the people of Mecca about polytheism and social injustice. And so the strong emphasis you see in Islam to this day on one God and one God only, and on writing social justice, and it's interesting, when you look at Islam around the world, you can see that each particular flavor of Islam has adopted, in addition to its focus on one God, a localized brand, if you will, of what they consider to be most socially unjust. The Imam only preaches on a Friday, and he typically preaches about God, of course, and his revelation through the Prophet, and then pivots into a social justice issue that is top of mind for him. Before Muhammad rose to power, the Kaaba in Mecca, which is the sacred shrine, you'll know it from the photos, it's the big black shrouded cube in the center of Mecca. The Kaaba actually predates Islam, and it was a pagan shrine before it was the center of Islamic worship. In 622, following an assassination attempt, Muhammad flees Mecca to Medina, where he founds the first mosque, also known as a masjid, which literally means the place of prostration. And around that first place of worship, Islam begins to coalesce and develop until it becomes strong enough that they can invade Mecca in 630 AD, capture it, and rededicate the Kaaba to the worship of the one true God. Islamic faith is based on God's revelation to Muhammad. Reciting the Quran in Arabic is the primary means through which Islamic people develop closeness with God. And it is reading, reciting, and listening to the Quran in Arabic. Also, what Muhammad said, what Muhammad did, and what Muhammad silently approved has developed into what is now known as the Hadith. The Hadith is the Islamic code of conduct. It's similar to the Jewish Talmud. How do you walk out Islam? The Hadith is your guide. In Islam, faith means belief and practice. 
okay? In its most admirable forms, it is truly worthy of admiration in its emphasis on faith and practice. The five pillars of Islam are these. One, to publicly recite the Shahida, which is the witness. There is no God but God, and Muhammad is the messenger of God. The second pillar is to pray five times a day at dawn, at noon, mid-afternoon, at sunset, and after dark. The third pillar of Islam is to give alms. The giving of alms is the outworking of what they believe is growing in goodness. The third pillar of Islam is to grow in goodness as evidenced primarily these days by the giving of alms. This is referred to as zakat. The fourth pillar is to fast during the feast of Ramadan. And the fifth pillar is one time in your life to make a pilgrimage to Mecca. You've heard perhaps the term Sharia law. Sharia is a broad range of legal and ethical precepts, kind of like the Jewish Mishnah. In Judaism, we have the Gemara, we have the Talmud, the Mishnah, and the Gemara. These are the oral traditions that were eventually written down. In Islam, we have the Hadith and we have the Sharia. Muslims do not eat pork, they don't drink alcohol. You may have heard of the concept of the Dimmi in Islam. The Dimmi in Islam is a male, non slave, non Muslim, typically Jewish or Christian, who must pay a tax in order to live in peace in Islamic lands. There are six areas of belief that uh, typify Islam. One, the transcendent reality of God. In Islam, to associate God with any aspect of creation is known as shirk. It is the most horrendous form of heresy. The second area of belief in Islam is that from Adam on, God revealed salvation through a line of prophets. The five most important prophets, this might surprise you, are Noah, Abraham, Moses, Jesus, and Muhammad. How many of you didn't know that? Wave at me if you didn't know that those were the five most important prophets in Islam. These are all guys that you know and love. Noah, Abraham, Moses, Jesus, and Muhammad. Muhammad as the last prophet is known in Islam as the seal of the prophets, the greatest of the prophets. In Islam, you believe in the reality of spiritual beings. Particularly, again, friends of yours, the archangels, Gabriel, Michael, Raphael, and Israel. Muslims believe that angels are emissaries between the visible and the invisible realms. Fourthly, Muslims believe that the Torah, the Psalms, the Gospels of Jesus are earlier revelations from God to humanity. And so it is not uncommon for Muslim people to study the Torah, the Psalms, and the Gospels of Jesus. I find this humbling because I don't spend much time studying the Quran. The um, next key in Islam, key belief, is the belief in judgment, the day of resurrection. Guess who the day of resurrection is announced by? The prophet Jesus. In Islam, Jesus is the one who announces the resurrection. At the day of judgment, God will destroy the world and judge everyone. And here is a very interestingly particular from Islam, one that I find quite attractive. And I believe this is one of the reasons that Islam is attractive to so many, particularly North Americans who are looking for a faith system that is different than anything they've ever encountered. At the judgment, God will judge everyone according to the degree to which they adhered to the revelation with which they were blessed. Very different from what we believe. Um, quite a bit more winsome than what we believe. 
you'll be judged only according to the revelation that you were blessed with. If you were good, you go to paradise. If you're bad, you go to a fiery hell. There's also temporary punishment for weak believers. <laughs> Sounds a lot like purgatory to me. So if you have a little bit of alcohol on the side, you're going to be punished for a while, but don't worry, you'll make it to paradise eventually. The uh, sixth core belief in Islam is uh, predestination and divine destiny. It's known as qadr. Nothing in the natural world in Islam happens beyond God's omnipotence and omniscience. While God's absolute goodness and perfect unity isolates him from all evil. And he furnishes prophets with revelations to guide those who believe. It's going to be a bit longer tonight. Hinduism. How many of you have always been interested in Hinduism? Anybody wave at me? Just me? Okay, like three of us. All right, so I'll try to be fast. It's really interesting. Hinduism um, arose into the state that it exists in today, most scholars believe largely because of the relative security of the Indian subcontinent. On the northern part of the Indian subcontinent, of course, are the Himalaya Mountains, which form a formidable barrier against invasion. And then India is surrounded on the other three sides by, <clears throat> in antiquity, what were impenetrable oceans. And so this stability gave rise to established localized communities with distinct languages. In Hinduism, there's 12 plus known languages and established birth groups that came to determine almost every aspect of daily life. In Hinduism, the Vedas are the secret, sacred teachings. They arose, most scholars believe, in the sixth century BCE. This is right around the time when King David's kingdom was arising, by the way. And they are hymns primarily to the male gods, Indra, Agni, and the female god, Sarasvati. The Rabanas are rules on ritual. The Aran, I'm gonna get this wrong. The Aranyakas are writings that contain magical practices. The Upanishads, which are much more well known, are meditations on the nature of reality. These were originally oral and then eventually, many, many years later, written down. Something very important that developed in Hinduism was the Dharma Shastra in 500 BCE, which is a universal system of social divisions. If you've heard of the caste system in India, that's when it developed in 500 BCE. The caste divisions are as follows. One, Brahmins. These are priests or educated people. Two, Kshatriyas. These are warriors. Three, Vaisyas. These are merchants. Four, Sudras. These are laborers. Hinduism is marked by local temples with elaborate localized ritual. There is no single religious authority in Hinduism. There is no single origin story. There is no single book or institution to speak for the whole. From a Hindu perspective, existence is about the relationship of the individual soul, also known as the Atman, to the cosmic soul, which is known as the Brahman. So that is the central preoccupation in Hinduism. How does the individual soul relate to the cosmic one? And all existence in Hinduism is seen as a cycle of birth, death, and rebirth, which is known as samsara. So that you have to hold on to. Okay, Hinduism sees all of existence as caught up in a never-ending cycle of birth, death, and rebirth known as samsara. In Hinduism, and we'll note a difference in Buddhism in just a moment here, in Hinduism, karma is the cumulative effect of one's intellectual, verbal, and physical actions over a series of lives, which determines one's place in the cycle of samsara. This is where I find Hinduism difficult, because it seems quite well-suited 
to saying to a sudra, a laborer, of course, the one caste that nobody wants to be born into, well, that's just your lot in life. The caste into which you were born is your cosmic place for now. Not surprisingly then, the key goal in Hinduism is moksha. Moksha is not primarily a yoga center. Moksha is escape from samsara. Moksha is final escape from the cycle of birth, death, and rebirth. It is the ultimate goal in Hinduism. The other thing that Hindu teachers will remind you though is that in addition to the quest to escape, the quest to attain moksha, a Hindu will discover in their life the role that comes with their place in the given order of things. And with this role come a series of obligations. And these obligations are social, moral, religious duties known as the Dharma. And Dharma matches the caste into which you were born. So if you're of the warrior caste, you have a certain set of obligations that you must fulfill. If you're of the Brahmin, the priestly caste, you have a different set of obligations that you must fulfill. In Hinduism, there are four stages in life. One is grihastha, which is household life. Think of that as basic adulthood. Two is brahmankarya, which is student life. The role when you are a student is to care for your elders. The third stage of life in Hinduism is vanaprastha, which is quite fun. It literally means forest dwellers or retirement. So when you retire, you get to go hang out in the trees. The um, fourth stage is samnyasa, which is old age or ascetic renunciation just prior to death. This is important, there are four goals in Hinduism. Four goals in life. One, kama, which is pleasure. Two, artha, which is wealth. Three, dharma, which is religious duty. Four, moksha, which of course is liberation. As I've already said, your caste is your place in the cosmic order. As a householder, meaning during your adult life, you must devote yourself in Hinduism to your local temple. And bhakti is the term for that kind of personal piety. So you tend to worship in your local context. You tend to worship a local goddess or god. Very importantly, in the uh, second century BCE, the Bhagavad Gita, which is probably the most popular Hindu writing that has survived to the modern age, records Vishnu, who is the preserver god of Hinduism, teaching the warrior king Arjuna how to gain rapid release from samsara by focused personal piety. This is the birth of what is known today as devotional Hinduism. It is by far the most popular form of Hinduism. Why? Because in learning devotional Hinduism, you can escape the cycle of life, death, and rebirth much more rapidly than otherwise possible. In the sixth century, this kind of devotional Hinduism spread into the Tamil-speaking South, and it became so popular that by the 14th century, devotional Hinduism for all intents and purposes, was Hinduism. Today, rich Hindu businessmen have replaced the powerful kings and emperors of antiquity as the ones who sponsor local temples that become your place of personal worship. Local shrines in Hinduism are typically dedicated to goddesses, while local temples are typically Vaishnavite or Shaivite, meaning they are dedicated to Vishnu or to Shiva. It's very important to understand Hinduism to know that the deity resides in the temple. 
So your local deity resides in your local temple. And so you, as a Hindu, must decide whether to appear before the deity two, four, or up to six times a day. And the deity does not see you unless you show up at the temple or shrine. The itinerant teachers in Hinduism, for all intents and purposes, created Hinduism as we know it today. And it's interesting that some of these popular itinerant teachers um, founded movements of their own. Particularly, the uh, Hindu teacher Mahavira became the founder of Jainism. He lived between 540 and 477 BC. Of course, um, Siddhartha Gautama, the founder of Buddhism, was also a traveling Hindu teacher. He lived between 563 and 483. And uh, Guru Nanak, the founder of Sikhism, split from Hinduism, and uh, he lived much later, between 1469 and 1539. It's really important to remember the four goals of the Hindu life. Pleasure, wealth, religious duty, and ultimately, liberation. Last one, deep breath. Buddhism. I like Buddhism a lot. Um, a Buddha is someone who has awakened to the ultimate truth of all things. Siddhartha Gautama, the historical Buddha, is the founder of Buddhism, and uh, he is thought to have been born in the 6th century BCE in southern Nepal, although no one knows for sure. The Buddha was Kshatriya-born. He was of the military caste. He was uh, raised rich, pampered, and privileged, and it was the four sights that led him on his spiritual journey. The first was the sight of sickness. The second was the sight of old age. The third was the sight of death. The fourth was the sight of a monk seeking a path for overcoming suffering. The core writings in Buddhism are the Jatakas. These are the non-historical stories of the deeds of the Buddha's many lives. They've been used for over 2,500 years as teaching tools. The Sutras are the discourses of the Buddha assembled over 45 years of his ministry. And the Dharma are the foundational teachings of the Buddha as expressed in the Four Noble Truths. You may have heard of the Four Noble Truths of Buddhism. The first noble truth of Buddhism is the truth of suffering. Again, this owes itself to Hinduism, the reality of birth, death, and rebirth. So in Buddhism, samsara is again the thing to be escaped. Buddhism believe in impermanence. They believe that attachment is a delusion. They believe that there is no unchanging, permanent, transcendent substance in the universe. The second noble truth in Buddhism is that suffering is attached to craving. Okay? Craving, tanha, the craving for pleasure, the craving for existence, the craving for non-existence. The goal in Buddhism is to eliminate the links in the chain of attachment because attachment leads to additional becoming. And the ultimate goal in Buddhism is nothingness. Nirvana is a Buddhist concept. It is the unconditioned sphere. Nirvana is the ultimate goal. The third noble truth of Buddhism is the cessation of suffering through extinguishing the fires of greediness, hatred, and ignorance. The fourth noble truth in Buddhism is that there is a path that leads to ending samsara, and this is known as the Noble Eightfold Path. The Noble Eightfold Path is as follows. It involves right understanding, right thought, right effort, right mindfulness, right concentration, right speech, right action, and right livelihood. Popular sports coaches like um, Phil Jackson of the Bulls and um, the coach of the Seattle Seahawks, what's his name? Pete Carroll. Pete Carroll. You will hear in their teachings 
Many references to the Noble Eightfold Path. There are five key precepts in Buddhism. No killing, no theft, no sexual misconduct, no lying, and no intoxicants. There are four classes of people in Buddhism. Monks, nuns, laymen, and laywomen. These people constitute the Sangha. And the Sangha, along with the Dharma and the Buddha, are the three jewels of Buddhism, and Buddhists are encouraged to find refuge in the three jewels. And though Buddhism in its early days was harshly critical of Hinduism, which it found to be far too ritualistic, upon the Buddha's death, his followers scattered his ashes amongst ten different shrines. And surprise, surprise, those shrines and many more became places of intense pilgrimage and the foundation of an intense pilgrimage network that remains to this day and echoes Hinduism almost in a one-to-one ratio. Buddhist karma is slightly different than Hindu karma. Buddhist karma is a vast interconnected web of causal relationships where good leads to more good and bad leads to more bad. There are types of Buddhism. The uh, first is the oldest, it's Theravadan Buddhism. We hardly see any of this here in the West. The second is Mahayanan Buddhism. We do see some of this. Mahayanan Buddhism is the Buddhism of the workers. Theravadan Buddhism is the Buddhism of the elite, of the priestly caste and the educated class. Mahayanan Buddhism is a little more down to earth, a little more relaxed. It is preoccupied with awakening the minds to compassion and wisdom. Yogacaran Buddhism, of course, you hear the word there, yoga, um, is of course connected to the practice of yoga, and its ultimate concern is connection with thusness or emptiness. And the third form of, uh, the fourth rather form of Buddhism is uh, Vajrayanan Buddhism, which is quite popular um, in the U.S. and in Canada to a lesser extent. It was popularized during the 60s and the 70s. Vajrayanan Buddhism is Tantric Buddhism. So if you've heard of tantric sex, if you've heard of um, tantric music, tantric singing, if you've ever had anyone encourage you to um, get involved in that, that is the expression of Vajrayanan Buddhism. The goal of Buddhism is this, how can I accelerate my passage to enlightenment or Buddhahood? So with all that said, why am I a Christian? I'm a Christian because I was raised in a Christian home, a ministry home, no less. I was raised by a pastor, son of a pastor, son of a pastor, son of a pastor, by a mother, daughter of a pastor, son of a pastor, son of a pastor. The way of Jesus in my home was our way. That is one of the reasons why I am a Christian. I'm a Christian because at 11 years of age, I had a vision of my dad transfigured as he preached. And as I saw him transfigured, God spoke to me and called me to repentance. I ran to my dad after the service and he led me to Jesus right then and there at the age of 11. That is why I am a Christian. I'm a Christian because through my teenage years and my young adult years, I experienced the power of God at work in my life and my friends' lives. I saw the power of God at work in our lives principally as evidenced by hope, purpose, and focus that had previously been absent. Okay, I literally saw friends whose lives had been characterized by hopelessness discover hope because of Jesus. 
I saw them discover purpose because of Jesus. I saw them discover focus because of Jesus. And their lives transforming is why I am a Christian today. I'm a Christian because ongoingly throughout my adult life, I have experienced the actual presence of God working in the midst of worship and preaching. I have literally experienced the presence of God working in the gathered context. It's why I love church to this day. I am a Christian because the love of God and the way of Jesus has resulted in me having a marriage to sweet Nikki that I would not trade for anything. As I have traveled throughout my 46 years, I have not yet seen another marriage that I would trade for ours. And that is not because we are outstanding people. It is because God in his mercy is outstanding and because Jesus has absolutely changed our lives and continually changes our lives by the power of his Holy Spirit. I am a Christian because um, even as I nearly lost my faith in 2001 after my sweet brother-in-law Rob Hall died in a building accident while serving as a missionary in Africa, even as I almost lost my faith, I sat the following year interviewing Tom Harper. You may know him as a renowned Canadian author who wrote a book called The Pagan Christ. And I was interviewing him about this book and I had to read his book as part of my preparation for the interview. And that book literally almost destroyed the fading embers of my faith. In fact, I called Nikki right before the interview. I just finished the book and I said, well, if this guy's right, I have built my life on a fairy tale. She said, good luck with that, and I went in and interviewed him. As I sat across from this renowned Canadian author who was a peer, a contemporary of my grandparents, the exact same age as them, as I looked into his eyes, I saw a darkness and a despair that stood in absolutely radical contrast to the joy and the fulfillment that I saw in my grandparents' eyes and which I had seen evidenced in their lives. And so I called Nick again after the interview, and I said, well, I survived. Even if he's right, and even if I'm building my life on a fairy tale, I'd rather end up like my grandparents than like him. And so I made a decision that day to keep limping after Jesus. And right there in that moment, As a grown man, my faith was reborn. And it was shortly thereafter, standing in another man's church, for I was pulpitless at that time, standing stock still in worship because I was still mad at God over allowing my brother-in-law to die. I kid you not, as I stood there, I felt like someone dumped a bucket of warm oil over the back of my head and my shoulders. I believe it was the presence of the Holy Spirit falling on me, and I began to weep in the Lord's presence, and I began to sing in worship, and I had not sung in worship since Robbie had died. The Holy Spirit fell on me and saved my soul. It was roughly eight months later that I took this church while still clinging to the dream of riches and fame and media. And shortly thereafter, sitting at another man's funeral, as my dad preached, that God spoke to me another time and said two words audibly, just preach. Within months, my TV career was over, and here I am in Guelph, 
just preaching to you about the singularity of Jesus as outlined in John 1, 1 through 5. And I'll close with this. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and that life was the light of all people. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. I follow Jesus because He's God. Verse 1, and the Word was God. We must not forget that Jesus claimed equality with God. He said infamously, he or she who has seen me has seen the Father, John 14, 9. He said, I and my Father are one, John 10, 30. It was these statements of equality with God, his Father, that got him killed. Here's the point about this. If Jesus claimed to be God but wasn't, he's a madman worthy of ridicule. But if he was telling the truth, he is absolutely worthy of your worship and absolutely worthy of devotion. I follow Jesus because he's the maker. We see this in verse 3. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. I saw in Tom Harper's eyes an unmade life, and I see those same signs of unmadeness in many of the people I meet and interact with every single week, and I'm here to tell you today that I do not want to live an unmade life. I follow Jesus because he's the source. Receive it. In him was life, and that life was the light of all people. He's the source. Do you know somebody who's spiritually famished? Like Siddhartha Gautama, has the fullness of life left you empty and somehow seeking more? Like Muhammad, do you rail against the injustices you see around you in the world? Like billions of Hindus down through the ages, are you just looking for someone, anyone to help? Do you wish that you could dance in prayer? And like the Jews, wouldn't you find it deeply encouraging to know that you belong to God? If that's you, friend, come to Jesus today. He is the source. He is the source. He is the answer you have been looking for. I have no doubt about it. I have built my life upon it. I know it as I breathe. He is the answer you have been looking for. Jesus Christ, God the Son made flesh, went to a cross where he hung in your place for your sins. He suffered and died as he hung there for your sins. He paid the penalty that you should have paid. The Bible says that the wages of sin is death, and Jesus died in your place. But because he was God, he rose again the third day, defeating in his body the power of Satan, sin, and death, and hell once and for all. And that victory, which is his, is applied to your life as you become one of his people. If you want to come to Jesus today, all you need to do is pray. That's not all you need to do as in once and forever. It's how you start. You can just say with me very quietly in your own heart, Jesus, I want to come to you today. I want to become one of your people. I need you. I've tried everything else. Forgive me of my sins. Come into my heart. Make me yours. Fill me with your Holy Spirit. Do for me what I have not been able to do for myself. Friend, if you just prayed that prayer with me, welcome to the family of God. Send me an email this week, todd at gracecommunity.ca. I would love to help you take the next step.
Friends, what's beautiful about Jesus' victory is that as you are in him, his victory is yours. And because it's his victory, that victory is assured because he is undefeated. We see this as we close in verse 5. The light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not overcome it. Notice the light shines in the darkness. His activity is everywhere, even in the darkness. And that is why, though I respect each of their traditions and have learned from them in many ways, I am not bound to an animal spirit or to the law or to the five pillars or to the never-ending quest to escape samsara or to the noble eightfold path, though I find it very helpful. I am bound to Jesus because all religions aren't basically the same.